Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Engley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, Ryan. How you doing? I am doing all right. Uh, we are fulfilling a listener request today, uh, and we were talking about um, Aura, and, um, you know, this is a little bit of a thing for you, uh, Walter Benjamin, but here's here's this. Todd has a thing about this. I do people, have a thing about this. <laughs> people only ever do Benjamin. They they always say Walter. They Walter. don't say. They it's don't say very Vol- funny. It's, it's <laughs> it has to be like well, it's either Walter Benjamin, Benjamin, or yeah, Walter <laughs> Benjamin, right? Like yeah. it can't. But but we don't do it. It's Sigmund Freud is the same. Same right? thing. Like, yeah. 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 No one, no one, no one Zygmunt, right? No, no one Zygmunt, right? Very yeah. Interesting. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. So yeah, so Walter Benjamin, uh, Benjamin, uh, American baseball player or something probably. Right. Uh, <laughs> like that would be, that's the nice t- uh, firsty, firsty person. So yeah, listener request. And this, um, I think, might appear uh, to be a little bit um, outside uh, the realm of people we normally talk about or kind of theory that we entertain, even though, you know, he, he's, uh, uh, an avowed, uh, Marxist, but he is not exactly a dialectical materialist. He's a more, a literal materialist and, uh, very, uh, interested in the art object. Um, but I think we're probably gonna end up making the argument that, uh, he is a lot closer to, um, the brand of theory that uh, we often discuss on this podcast than I think is generally acknowledged. And part of the reason, hate to pillory him, we're trying not to, but it's, it's really Adorno, uh, the uh, the namesake of your son, Todd, uh, That's true. for, for, That's for true. doing this. Uh, so, so, so there's, we're going to outline uh, specifically uh, the uh, work of art in the age of uh, mechanical reproduction, which is another thing to talk about. We're talking about names, I think, a lot about this and um, and, and how things are uh, translated. Uh, it is going to be a thing here. And also, like, additions and framing about this uh, this this idea. In the essay, I think it's like pretty well known, um, Benjamin talks about uh, aura. I think that that's the most famous thing from it, but it's, I, I don't think that's our interest in this essay. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think, so Aura, it's interesting the way he brings it up because the first few sections, he talks about the loss of Aura in the work mm. of art. And as you read it, you're like, wait a minute. It seems like Benjamin, he's a Marxist. He's criticizing the way capitalism destroys Aura, right? right? Like you right. can imagine another... Marxist making that argument, except that's not the argument he's making no, because yeah. he sees the destruction of aura actually as a good thing. Like that mm-hmm. is what the, I think you could almost, and this is his terminology, you could almost call it the proletarianization of art. Mm-hmm. Like what that does is destroys aura. So aura is this thing that attaches to a work of art because of the distance that we necessarily have from it. So for instance, at, if, a, if a work of art is hanging alone in a museum, mm-hmm. it has an aura about it because it only exists in the museum. You can't get that, you know, it has a plastic or glass shield over it, right? You right. can't get that close to it. And if you get mm-hmm. close to it, you never get close to this thing of like Picasso painted this and this aura that mm-hmm. surrounds Picasso. And so what's interesting is the aura, it's almost like the aura comes from the artist her himself, right? Like their mm-hmm. act of creating the art endows it with a kind of aura that 
wouldn't that the artwork wouldn't have if it didn't have a particular artist behind it, I think. Right. I, th- I think that's correct. And it, like I, Mona Lisa is a great example because the, it, it's, it's so funny. The, the aura it acquires, uh, is also through the fact that it was stolen. Right, and, right. and, and, and I think, I think people forget that. Cause the, then it's not there. Like when something's stolen, it's not like, or it depends on the thing not being there and present. Right. Yeah. 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 I, absolutely. And, 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 and the fact that it was, the fact that it was taken away and, and then, and now we have it, like it, it adds to, um, I don't know, it adds to the legend, but I, I think like, um, there's same this with really, monks, the scream, right? Like same thing. Oh, like yeah, it's the yeah, fact yeah. that it was absolutely. stolen also kind of adds to this aura that surrounds it. There's this, yeah, there's this funny, there's this, um, funny line in, uh, a a TV show I like a lot. It's a cartoon. It's not the Simpsons. That's usually my reference point, but the Venture Brothers, there's this, uh, they have this guy who is, and the, the setup of the show is really funny because it's like super scientists against, uh, um, super villains, like a Saturday morning cartoon kind of thing, like Johnny Quest. But in this world, they are, um, they've have formalized it. Like there's a guild of calamitous intent that matches up a villain with a proper level of super scientists so that, cause you know how in cartoons the villain is never killed by the hero and the hero never kills the villain. They just like go cat and mouse forever. Like, right, so right. in this world there's this thing that makes sure it happens. Anyway, there's this guy who's an art collector and he's trying to sell a painting to, uh, to someone. And the, uh, the this guy goes, uh, I want the Mona Lisa. And the guy's like, the Mona Lisa is not a better painting than this. It's just a more famous painting. And it's only more famous because it was stolen. Like he like kind of freaks out about it. And I think that, um, that, I don't know, that thing that, that in one of the things we talked about in the pre-show is a way of understanding quilting point in this, in this way as well, is that, um, the, I don't know the the story like around the object gives it this uh this this I don't know the story of its own and like for something about like like Mona Lisa and the and the scream like is it like it took this story that had something that not to do with it that had had to do with its like capitalist value and somehow that makes it more valuable as an art object right. and that that I think is is kind of so it it took this again, this theft that is for purely commodity reasons. And that has been like reintroduced into the object to increase its value aesthetically. And I think that, um, Benjamin, I think would be very much against that. Yeah. I think that's a, I, I think we should unpack what you said because this is really good. So the other, but before I do that, I want to just say one thing that, that if you go yeah. to see the Mona Lisa, which I yeah. heartily don't recommend, like it is, <laughs> It is so dis- disappointing. For one thing, there's like a thousand people in a room that should only have a hundred, mm-hmm. and <laughs> and they're all flashing. You can't get close to it. Everybody's flashing their picture. It's and, and so and and the pic, the painting itself is like small and rather unimpressive. And so yeah. I think it just shows that it has the aura almost insofar as you don't see it, right? Like yeah, when you see it, the good. aura goes away. Especially at least I felt that way for Mona Lisa. So that's one thing. But I think what you're saying is really good that that even though aura is a non, I think Benjamin or sees its origin in the pre-capitalist world. Yeah. There is a way in which within capitalism, there's these attempts to increase the aura of certain yeah. things in order to mm-hmm. give them a value. I mean, I, he doesn't use this term, but I think what you would call it is sublimation, right? Like there's yeah, an attempt yeah, yeah, to yeah. make Agreed. this 
thing into a sublime object. And I think that's the, or sublime thing. And I, I feel <laughs> like that's what he's, he, he doesn't necessarily directly talk about that because he sees capitalism as destroying the aura. But I do mm-hmm. think there's a, he doesn't quite get to the way in which the aura could be actually sustained and, and, and promulgated by capitalism. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it does so in a way it's, it's, re- it's really fascinating because that, that whole, the, that whole thing with the Mona Lisa, like it, 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 it takes away. Um, well, I don't know. There, maybe there's two ways. Uh, <clears throat> I have to cough. Sorry. <clears throat> there's, a, there's, there's two ways of looking at this that, um, it makes it okay. Well, I think we might be on the side of this given a previous episode that this increases one's like interpassive relationship to the, the Mona Lisa. Right. Um, and I think that w- that kind of scandalizes Benjamin a little bit. Would would you say? Or, or Yeah, or, I think so. Yeah. Can you say more about why that would be? Cause I think that's right. That, that he doesn't have any theoretical room for mm-hmm. inner passivity because he's all about the way in which, and this is what we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. The destruction of aura actually yeah. allows for activity mm-hmm. on the part of the audience, right? There, the, right. he doesn't even—he almost doesn't even want to use the term audience. Like it's not clear what term he would use. So mm-hmm. I think that's—you know what I mean? Because he's so mm-hmm. concerned about turning them into an active respondent. It's almost like respondent yeah. is the word that he would want to use to the for the audience, right? And so I think you're right that inner passivity would rub him the wrong way because he, he thinks the whole point is to get out of that passive, yes. that passive position. By the way, just a slight note, uh, mm-hmm. a slight tangent on inner passivity. <laughs> okay. I was, I was noticing that you can pay for your seats at a baseball game and they could put a cardboard oh, God, yes. in yes. the place of you. And so yes. it's the, to me, that's the ultimate Mm-hmm. version of inner passivity because there's not even a machine <laughs> recording the action for you it's yeah. purely a cardboard thing that's watching in your stead and so and i think that's something that benjamin even though he we'll get to this later as well he liked sports and yeah. thought sports was a progressive uh, had a progressive function um but i think he would not like that i think he no. would see that as a part of a, he would see that passivity in the spectator as a real problem well, you know what's going to happen is that, and like, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I want to put this down in 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 a document now on the day that we're recording, whenever it goes out. Someone will hit a walk off home run, and what they will do is they will grab a cardboard cutout fan and run a- around the bases with them. That is gonna happen this year, and people are gonna yeah, lose their minds about it. Yeah, that's so, pretty good. And that's gonna be, and that that'll be that'll be like, oh, you you thought it couldn't get any higher? That's even more inner because you could never you get arrested if you tried to do that to at a at a baseball game in the you know in the before times you couldn't run around the bases with them right so but right now, but now you can right now you can yeah, yeah. so that's right. gonna be that's gonna be something um yeah Maybe, no, it would, I, would it be great if you had to pay extra if the person took that you is so yeah why not let's let's make money off like like that's that is such a thing that's gonna happen too they'll increase the the yeah the 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 walk off home run cardboard cutout seats that there's a pool of available cutouts that a, <laughs> that, that a baseball player can grab. Yeah. I'm, that's yeah. still going to happen this year. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, so I think to, yeah. So with Benjamin and, and aura, it, it is his, um, I think it is his, uh, his veneration of objects that w- that, I think puts him on the the side of interactivity rather than inter passivity, um, which doesn't make him a bad guy or whatever, but that's, that's just where he is, um, theoretically. And you can see this in, um, 
his writings on collection. Um, and he, you know, he writes about like, he has this phrase, phrase about like rescuing a book from a right, bookstore right, and some, you know, right. and, uh, he would him, hate, he would yeah. hate Amazon. He because, would absolutely. Cause you yeah. can always find it, right? Like you can yeah. always, I was talking to, it's funny. Cause I was talking to Slavoj one, one time and he's like, you know, I used to love to go to London because there was this bookstore I'd go down to, I could always find a little thing. And he was like, now I go to London, I can log on and have a book delivered to my hotel sooner than I could go yeah. out and get it. And he's like, it's just terrible. It's terrible. Like the whole reason I like to go to London, I hated the food. I didn't like, the, you know, <laughs> I, I just loved this one bookstore and that's just yeah. gone. Like it's just destroyed. And so what's destroyed is the aura surrounding that book, right? Because, and, and the yeah. idea of, of making that book into a sublime thing. I mean, it's interesting that, that, that he doesn't talk about, I guess he doesn't have Lacan's notion of sublimation. Yeah. Because I think if he did, I think he would talk about, you know, that for Lacan, sublimation means to raise an ordinary object to the dignity of dusting or the thing. Mm-hmm. And give it a sublime value. And I, I think he would like that a lot because I think you're right. Like the collecting the book, that kind mm-hmm. of thing is really, it's really, um, it's really about that, that kind of making it into a sublime object. Absolutely. And that's his way out because it's, it's interesting. You said that because it conflicts like he, on the one hand wants to see the, the aura like destroyed, but on the other hand, it would be scandalizing to him, I think. And it's the, the way out is I think the dusting, the, the Lacanian sublimation. So like that makes, I think, you know, makes this episode like I think a nice pair with the one we did on aesthetics. Um, and it, this, uh, this idea of, I th- again, it's, I, I don't know. I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of sympathy or maybe empathy for, um, for, for Benjamin's uh, position because man, I love good packaging for yeah, something. Yeah, you do. You're the whole I'm, Apple box guy. Right? <laughs> I am the Apple box guy. <laughs> that's yeah. me. Yeah. That's really yeah. funny. Yeah. You know, DVD box sets. I, the Mad Men box set, the complete series is like, it comes with two, um, whiskey glasses. Unbelievable. Well, like yeah. they did a wonderful job, yeah. you know, and but even still, um, it is more like the the position of I suppose the position of this podcast, the position of psychoanalysis, is that like the and we said this in the aesthetics episode that like you have to see the work of art as a as a wound in some way. And I think yeah. that for Benjamin, it, the like the the work of art is um, is exceptional, and that there the way to like engage with it and to think about it, um, it demands a, a participation and, a, and an appreciation that I think um, there is tension. There's, there's conflict between that, that position and, and, and the psychoanalytic one. And what our position would be. I think that's right that there is. And I think, that, yeah, because for him, I think, and I think it comes down to that inner passivity question as it mm-hmm. comes back to that in a way, right? Like that you can, like there is, I guess, something active about that, that act of sublimation but there's still in regarding the work of art, there's something I think if the if the work of art is playing out and imposing a kind of and forcing you to live out a kind of fantasy, mm-hmm. that there's something that can that can in that passive moment can deliver you over to something that you otherwise wouldn't a trauma, like you suggested, a wound yeah. that you otherwise wouldn't be able to experience. And I think, mm-hmm. I think for Benjamin, that's not the point of art at all. Like it's art is about our participation in it. And I think that's the key of the turn of this mm-hmm. essay that he would, 
I think he, what he would so the turn is he's he he notices the way in which capitalism destroys aura, and it seems like he's being mm-hmm. critical. But then he's like, no, 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 this destruction of aura actually is the is the way in which the proletariat can then assert itself into the work of art, and he sees film mm-hmm. as paradigmatic for that. And film and 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 it's much more our interaction with film. Mm-hmm. That really is the source for Benjamin of its radicality. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. He's very so. Um, do we want to do we want to get into the to the meat of this to the changes to Adorno's changes and Norton's? Changes? Yeah, sure. So let's let's first talk about the title because that's just, yeah. a, just a nitpick <laughs> on our part. But we both share this. No, but idea. it's a big it's a big deal. It's I think it's a big deal. Like it like so it it, it, it works. It actually it actually goes against. Benjamin's whole point, yeah, that, yeah, in this in this essay, I think. I think so, right? Because the whole point is about the destruction of the aura surrounding the original, right? That's yes. the whole point of the essay. A whole point, that whole point of the essay, and then, so the title always was in English translated, not great, but it's the translation: the work of yeah. art in the age of its mechanical reproduction. Mm-hmm. Well, that I think that's that's a nice kind of has catchy. It's fine. Uh, and then when Harvard put out the new selected writings, they retranslated it, and it became the work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just not as good, I don't think. No, it's, it's clunky. It's, it's, it's so cumbersome, yeah. right? And, it, and so you gain the accuracy of the translation, but you lose what's there's you know as we often talk about when something is translated badly there's there's something found in the new language yeah. that wasn't there in the old and mm-hmm. benjamin would be so in favor of that and yeah. so i think they should have just it just seems inexcusable you know they did it with the other his other maybe other equally famous essay theses on the philosophy of history which mm-hmm. they turned to again it's more correct on the concept of history which uh-huh. i mean theses on the philosophy of history that just sounds pretty great and <laughs> On the concept of history is just a, that's a null, that's a no good. So I feel like in both cases, they turned what was a really compelling title into a disastrous one. Yeah. And, and again, it just, you couldn't have done it. You, you maybe couldn't have done it to a, like, like a worse, like, like person. And I don't mean like, like that Benjamin's a bad person or he's not worth no. Like his it just whole doesn't point. doesn't fit, right, it, right. Yeah. The whole point is we do not uphold the original. Like, you know, like, like, like there, like do not venerate the original in, in, in that way. Like, like you, you need to, cause again, this is, and I think, yeah, in a sentence, his point, like you need the distance from it to be able to engage with it. I think that that would be like his, his point on that. And then, yeah, it's, yeah. So I mean, I mean, I think we've well, talked it's about it's like they're treating the original, like it has an aura around it, right? Yeah, I mean, like that's exactly, that's exactly right. what yeah. he would say. I think, I mean, maybe, I don't know. People are sometimes, they fetishize the words of their own title. So maybe he would be upset that they mistranslated it originally, yeah. but I don't think so. I think, I think that we, he, they, that he would respond in the way that we're suggesting because there's something, you know, found in that title that is then lost subsequently. Yeah. Feel, it would have to, know. it would just have to strike him that like you're, like you're, you're fetishizing the, the, the original, like you're right. in, and, and also again, c- commodifying it, like w- the translation, like you are Harvard Norton, like, oh, you, you need to cite the, you know, th- and this maybe gets into like, uh, inside academia a little bit, but like when publishing houses do this, they're trying to like assert, uh, that this is the authoritative edition Right now. And so that's like, again, it's another way of um, 
making some like it's commodifying a, a title. Right, you know? right. I mean, you're absolutely right that it's a way to make money. Like there are oftentimes translations that are perfectly fine, and then the uh, academic press will decide, oh, we're going to put out a new translation simply because we think we can make money off of it. Yeah. So and and it's so funny how like I I just I love that. So this the copy that I have is is from the second edition of the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism, and you know, it, it's not about you. You can't say that they have a, a concern with accuracy because they also refer to uh, the Lord and Bondsman section of uh, phenomenology of spirit as master slave, which is like that's Kojev. We'll probably talk about that in another podcast, but that's not exactly being accurate, right? right so it's, right, it's, right. it's not. It's not like it's a. It's not a concern, you know, of the of of the of the publishing house that they they right. want to have. Like, well, I think they've like, just yeah. taken that title from the Harvard translation. Yeah, right? that's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, but um, but the big yeah. thing is so the title. Okay, that's one thing. But the, the big thing up. is the second version of that. So Benjamin's essay was there were three versions of it. The first one, I think, does not exist anymore. So that's an interesting thing. And the second one was published, there's no original. That's interesting, which is nice, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That of yeah. course the essay, which is a critique of the original, would not have an original. That's yes, that's great, fantastic. Yeah. So I, the, the the earliest version that we have was published in French which again is kind of nice that the translated <laughs> version gets published. Yeah. And that's known as the second version. And then there was a third version put together with changes that he said to Adorno that he wanted, but put together basically by Adorno and his wife, Gretel Adorno, uh, put together in 40, I think is it, what, what year is it? Is it like 45 or it's, uh-huh. it's after he died. So he dies in 1940. Yeah. Very well, tragically, like he's trying to flee. He's fleeing yeah. Paris over the Pyrenees mm-hmm. and he's, he thinks the Nazis have caught up to him and he gives his, it's not clear what he gives, but it's seemingly he gave, gives the arcades project his lifelong project to a woman who then handed it over to the Gestapo when they, Ugh. they came for her. And so he, he, and then he, he took an overdose of morphine and, and, and died. So mm-hmm. that's 1940. And then Adorno becomes, something like his literary executor mm-hmm. and, and, and then has this essay and gets this later version published. The one and that, the, yeah, the date that I have is 55, 55. And, and okay. The, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So 55. So, so it's 15 years after he's dead and it's, it's, it's known as the third version of the essay, but it's relationship to the second version. And, and it's clear that it's not clear, I guess I should say that, that, Benjamin authorized these trends. Not that it matters that necessarily that yeah. he authorized them, but it <laughs> definitely the changes go against the spirit of what he's going after in the essay. Maybe we can talk about that, right? Yeah, I would love to. I mean, it's so interesting what's changed. Like you, you mentioned one earlier. There's a reference, approving reference to uh, sports spectatorship. That's really fascinating. That's in the second. That's not in the third. And I, I do. I mean, the reason why we. Uh, um, I just to be clear why I made a big deal about the, like the publishing and Harvard's uh, publishing of it. And the, and again, Norton uh, reproducing it is that like these anthologies, like they do matter and they, they go a long way toward um, they are attempts to arrest a canon, however problematic it may be, but that is, that is, that is what they do. And they become the, like the version of something, especially if you are in uh, the American Academy or you're going to to school. Like if you're an undergraduate, a graduate student, like these become like the reference points a lot of the times, because 
when you're a graduate student, like you're very poor and you don't have anything. So like to have like one big volume that has like fragments of thousands of like very important essays or, you know, bits of books, like that's like super, super, super important. So what can I just say one thing about that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think those should all be burned. And I think the graduate students (laughs) should go on the Russian website and download the, (laughs) and download all the different versions of the books that they need and not use that Norton thing because I just, I just, uh, yeah. No, no, I agree. Uh, No, no, we're, we're simpatico on this. Absolutely. Like, it's just, this is what happens. You, you know, you, you have every, every, you know, you don't, you don't do this, but most, most universities there's like a first year theory course, right? Like lit and cultural theory and whatever the current Norton is, that's what what they use. That's what they get. get So everyone, everyone, you know, in inverted commas has one of these. And when, and that's, that's just kind of the nature of it. And so again, what gets put in, that 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 comes to take on that, that it, it has meaning. So when you have so it's key that they put in the third version, right? Like it's, exactly it's incredibly important because so you mentioned so I think the sports this approving reference to sports spectatorship and the activity. So mm-hmm. what Benjamin liked about it was that it that he thought every sports fan watches the game. He calls it as, he says as a quasi expert. Yeah. So it's fascinating, and I think it's true. Like you know. Some of the most expert conversations most people have, I mean, you and I probably, it's true, <laughs> are about yeah. sports, you know, because we yeah. know like how the plays are designed. We understand like what's going on. And so, you know, you can, you can, you can talk about it not just as a, like the fan is also an ex, somewhat of an expert. So that's interesting. And then the other reference, and this, Todd, I think can I just, have, can I, yeah. I just want to like quick example. Yeah, just sure. that. Tomorrow is the last day of the Premier League. And I have a friend who wants to get into understanding footy he wants to understand football and so i'm going to talk to him on the phone and i'm going to explain he understands the rules of of, of soccer he gets he totally understands the rules but yeah. i'm going to explain how to the watch strategy it to him. Yeah, yeah yeah well yeah. just because like this happens so much in like american writing that that is dismissive of soccer is that it's like oh it's just people losing the ball that's that right. and that's and right. and and right. it's when you I mean, that just seems like incomprehensible, I think, to like a world audience like like uh, there, like I think it was like four or five years ago. Dan Shaughnessy had an article where he he wrote basically that. And he there was also this stupid thing about, well, you don't use your hand and your hand hands is what makes humans different from other. It's just such stupid bullcrap. But but the the in game, the the uh, the play argument for why like soccer is stupid as the announced point of the, the, this article he wrote is that it's just, it's people losing possession and, and, and that it's just, everyone is trying to chase the person that's, that has the ball. Like when kids play soccer, like at young levels, that's what ends up happening. And that's just like, that's not it. Like, like the, you know, you can, if you, if you watch it and you don't understand what you're watching, it can look like that, especially teams that press high up the pitch. It can look right. like they're just trying to make someone make a mistake and get capitalized on an error. And then that's how goals happen. But that's not, that's not, that's not really how it works. So it, it is, um, yeah. So, um, I think Benjamin's position is, um, exactly right. That like, that one has to, one has to adopt, however, you know, <laughs> fallacious it may be like one has to adopt the position of the quasi expert to like uh en- engage with it at all see and, that's and interesting them, because yeah. it goes against what we were saying i think in our episode on inner passivity right like for for benjamin the sports fan isn't really an inner passive 
uh, viewer of the event, right? Mm -hmm. Like instead it's the opposite. It's like the sports fan is active because the sports fan is a quasi expert saying, Oh no, I wouldn't have run a, a tailback draw there. I would have instead <laughs> ran a screen pass, you know, like, the, like the, well, no, the, but that, I, I don't know. I think that's, I think that there's a way to, to put the two positions together, which is just that like you and I are never going to call a game. So like that, so, we, so it's, it's where, it's where you locate. I think, I think, I guess I think it's where you locate the, um, the like activity and right, for, what you and, call active and what you yeah, don't call active. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So like, but, yeah, but yeah. I think, I think for, for both Slavoj and, and Robert Fowler that, that, really you're really like you're passive in the sense of you're just laying there zoned out watching the, <laughs> and I, it's interesting because I think that's how Robert Fowler views. I don't know if he's a sport. We, we had this whole discussion we whether did. he's a sports fan or not. Um, oh yeah. But I, I made he, the, I made the hot take claim that if your favorite sport is tennis, you don't like sports. So, right. So and I think I he also talks about NASCAR <laughs> or I mean, auto racing, which is again, that's another warning sign that he's not really a sports fan, but yeah, the, um, well, it, what it really is, is, I mean, this is what we talked about because like the fascinating non-recorded conversations that you and I have is that it's the, the, the differences between like uh, individual sports and team sports is a, is a, right. is a really big difference. Right. Right. So, so anyway, so, so I think that, that, that for him, it has to, like, there's something about sports fandom that's really passive, you know, like, mm-hmm. and he even says, you don't remember what happened when you're a sports fan when you were watching, I, which I think is wrong. So I think Benjamin mm-hmm. actually is more correct about how we do sports fandom, right? We mm-hmm. do it in this engaged way. And so it is... I think he, he almost thinks that sports fandom is kind of like workers of the world unite, you know, like he thinks yeah. that's the proletariat coming to class consciousness, which is so against the way of, you know, the sports as bread and circuses sports as this thing that, that yes. ideologically functions to keep the masses down. Right. And I, and so there's no wonder why Adorno got every positive reference to sports out of that essay, right? Like Adorno never played a sport or watched a sport his yeah. entire life. Yeah. You know, like it was just utter disdain for sports because he saw it as like, he even has this, there's this line, I think it's in minimum moralia where he says, you could, <laughs> the idea of imagining Nietzsche going out for a round of golf on the weekend is laughable. And so like, for him, <laughs> That was a somehow, for some reason, that was an indictment of Nietzsche and, sorry, that was an indictment of golf and not an indictment of Nietzsche. And, (laughs) you know, like it could, you could think it the other way around, right? Like you could think, like, I'm not defending golf necessarily, but you could, you could think like this refusal of sport is itself a kind of, I mean, I think this is what Benjamin would have said to Adorno. It's a kind of highbrow position on your part. Yeah, I, I think so. And it, it's interesting what, what what you were saying, like it occurred to me that um, you can see you can actually see this. Um, OK, I think you can. This is this is the the complicated, like the sewing the terms together. I, I think it's something like passive engagement. You can see the passive engagement come together when athletes are asked about something they did by a football commentator after the fact. And this happens all the time is someone will say, uh, when you scored that goal, when you threw that pass, when, you know, when you made that, when you hit that ball, like what was going through your mind and you can see the athletes, they, they have to be like, like, you know what the answer is? It's like, I just like, I just did it. 
that's that's the answer. That's that's the real answer. What's going that's going through my mind when I I hit that hanging curveball? It's like I don't know. I I saw it and I hit it, and right. I was I was I was looking. Maybe I was I was looking off speed and I hit it, and that's it. And but for us on the other side, because we will never do that. It's like no, he knows the pitcher. He knows in that count. That's what's going to happen. You know, they work on this and practice all the time, and this is what they're looking for. And it just it, it's it's a lot more it's a lot more layered. And then you know why did you why did you break to the ball that way? Um, at, you know at the at the end of this the second half, like ah, I saw an opening. You know, like you you hear it like like players just try to make it sound good after the fact because they're just they're just doing it. They're they're just doing the the action, and then on the other end of it, we're you know, quilting this narrative through it because right. we're not literally doing it. So well, that, well, I think I, that's absolutely I, yeah. right, Ryan, that you cannot theorize something while you're doing it. It's just, yeah. it's absolutely <laughs> possible. It would make you a terrible player. That's right? the, the Yogi Berra line. You can't think and hit the, hit the play baseball at the same time. You can't right, think. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right, right, right. I think that's absolutely right that you have to, and I think that's true. I mean, that's of course Hegel's idea about political action, right? Like there's no, there's this divide between, the political movement and then philosophy, which always, yeah. you know, it's, it always comes, it, it, it arises only with the falling of dusk, right? Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I think that idea, I think there's something to that idea that there's a, there's a way in which you can't, you can't theorize a movement right while you're in it. You just yeah. can't, you know, I think that's right. And I think it's right in sports, but, but the point is, I think your point is right. That, that's what for Benjamin is so great about sports spectatorship that mm-hmm. it has the, it puts you in this role where not only are you a quiet, you're actually more of an expert in some sense than the person who was doing it. Yeah, and I mean, I think that probably another another angle on this, and why it's like it's a shame it's not in the third edition that's in the that's in the Norton um, that you know you could extrapolate is that when you watch it's always like being a being this is the quasi expert thing is that. Everybody second guesses and they think that they know. And so, you know, it's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, I would have done this. I just, and it's always the, you know, if something doesn't work out, it doesn't work right. out. You'd always done the opposite. And you know what that is? That's not venerating the object. That's having That's this, right. this that, exactly. that it's, it's anti aura. It is. And it is. And it, in this way that allows you to appreciate from his, from the Benjamin perspective, it's allows you to actually, to actively engage with it. I think we're trying to make this, not insignificant point that that there is a passivity there that enables that engagement. Right. So right. But, but, but which he wouldn't the, acknowledge, I think. But I think you're I, absolutely yeah. right that he would love the fact that your disagreement with the call made in the game is actually your that's your activity. And I think he yeah. would also like that people get together in bars yeah. and watch sports and do it collectively. Like he yeah. I think there there's a so much about it. He would even today where it's you know, he, there's this constant battle in him, the way in which capitalism tries to take over these things. Mm-hmm. And then there's the proletariat's it's, it's efforts to, to fight against that. So there's a constant struggle. And I think you see even more with like, the ads on the uniforms and all that mm-hmm. stuff, the way in which mm-hmm. capital mm-hmm. penetrates. But I think he would, he would like that there are still these elements of the quasi-experts coming together in a collective. And I think yeah. that still exists. Yeah. So let's let's hit on this the the idea of the collective because I think that's he hits that harder in the second edition than is apparent right, in the third. Right. So th- there's a couple of things. So he sees the other big mention of the second edition which 
Adorno must have vomited really when he saw it, is that, <laughs> is that Benjamin praises, he calls them the globe encircling Mickey Mouse. And, yeah. and, you know, Adorno just thinks Disney is the, is the absolute worst. Yes. So, yes. so I think he, that had, that obviously didn't survive into the third edition, but I think mm-hmm. he sees Mickey Mouse as the site of a collective coming together, right? Yeah. Where we can, yeah. we all, everyone's seeing, and this is what he loves about the cartoon versus the painting, which the painting, mm-hmm. which has an aura, is that we can all come together and watch the same Mickey Mouse in all these different iterations, right? Like we're, yeah. we're all in different theaters, but we're mm-hmm. seeing the same Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And this, this goes along a little bit with his, um, I mean, we, uh, he, what is this in a letter? It's elsewhere. He talks about, um, sound, uh, being really like hugely de- detrimental. Yeah. So here's what he says. Is, yeah. This is 38. He says, I see more and more clearly that the launching of the sound film must be regarded as an operation of the film industry designed to break the revolutionary primacy of the silent film, which had produced reactions that were difficult to control and hence dangerous politically for capitalism. Right. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that, yeah, that is in a letter. And so he's, he's, he clearly sees this struggle and Mickey Mouse is on the side of the silent film, right? Like it's this, it's this fragmentary, creature who's always fighting against and I think that's what the other thing he likes about Mickey Mouse is that he's struggling against the authority figure within the cartoon. Yeah, there there is a um a, a strain of thought in um like film studies and film criticism that that upholds the silent era um as this like like the like democratic, I would almost say like bordering on like communistic like like era of film because you had you know, no one was talking, so these things could be translated a lot more easily in other to to other countries. Like, and and it uh, was made with all like this is the I think the the way the argument goes like with like all like all audiences could be like it could be made with them in mind. Like it, like it, it aimed at like a a, co- a collectivity of humanity and was not and they like, could be more active. And like the yeah, audience could talk, yeah. the audience commonly talked in silent cinema, right? Like that's yeah. a huge other aspect that, that gets lost. And like, if you talk in the sound film, I'm going to report you to the, <laughs> to the authority. Right? Like, yes. I, yes. I don't want anybody talking, but in the silent film, people talked all the time. So, because there was no, you know, you weren't list, there was music playing maybe, but there was no, like listening didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, 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 that's fascinating. So, so that, so that, that's certainly, that's certainly like, like a difference in me and perhaps is the reason why that's, that's taken out. Um, and, and maybe that's why he, he, he could, would have asked Adorno. Right. He might've authorized that excision because of that, because the way he saw film turning in a way that he didn't like, right. And turning it makes a, a, makes a more interesting point, I think. I the 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 earlier the earlier edition and I and I think it's a shame to lose it because instead like it's um we we ha- I mean we have more we have more pronouncements of the like you know co-opting corporatizing monoculture arization of film than like we know what to do with right and it's like the we, Frankfurt School has totally won yeah right? I think like that that's they're true. just they're like the Frankfurt school's writing in the Washington post now, right? Like they're just yeah. like that position, which is 
about capitalism's appropriation of everything radical yep. and the way that, you know, everything is just a commodity in the cinema. Like that, that's the position I think now. Yeah. Well, it's like, a, it's, it's a weird choice to fail to imagine that we can take up another position. Like if the film, like if the film and the corporation quote wants us to view it in this particular way, we have to. And I, I don't, I don't understand that. Like, I, I don't understand that. Um, well, isn't the other problem the idea that they really know what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a fantastic point. Yeah. I mean, isn't, <laughs> yeah. isn't, isn't the whole point of like uh, when you have to put something into an art form that it yeah. takes, it, yes. it often controls you. You don't control it, right? So, 100%. So these, these studio executives think they're indoctrinating us into their whatever. And then something else happens, right? Like it doesn't, they don't, they're not at totally in control mm-hmm. of, of even the director, I think is not like the director has an unconscious, like I think people don't know what they're doing. And so that's why I think Ben, you mean really, there's something really about his, I mean, don't you think his position, unlike Adorno's in Frankfurt school mm-hmm. allows for this, yeah, there's these ideological aspects of film, but there's also mm-hmm. these radical aspects of film. We have to constantly be thinking about both in relation to each other. Yes, I think that's 100% correct. And I think that, you know, there's something fascinating that I, I think I would call, there's an inclusion in the third edition that's not in the second that I would almost qualify as a, um, a slip by Adorno, um, where there's this long paragraph about uh, Freud, like approving of psychoanalysis and of the uh of the slip of the the parapraxis and the unconscious dimension and, and and how psychoanalysis like opens up um like seemingly banal interactions for like further analysis and how this can be seen in looking at works of art and y- you know if you it's not i think it's 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 more consistent to have the mickey mouse collectivity like um you know radical uh film plus the psychoanalytic uh perspective of opening something up it, th- that's much more consistent than taking out one in favor of the other right right i agree Be- because it allows exactly what you just said which is that like you you know you you don't have to imagine i mean i've, t- I've talked about this with with tv like this always ends up happening where when a tv show is going great and everyone loves it the showrunners and the writers are perfect masters when it's not satisfying anymore. They are fucking idiots and we need a petition to redo it. Someone needs to go in and fix it because these people were frauds and we, we should have known it earlier, but we didn't know it. And it's like, they were frauds the whole time in every show that you have ever liked. It's frauds. Like that's the whole, that's the whole thing is it's frauds. And the, like, like you, you have to, you have to come at it from this perspective, or I should put it this way. When you come at something from the perspective that people do things for reasons against why they think they do it, and not everyone knows what they're doing the entire time, you see that there is an excessive and lacking dimension to this kind of art. And if you accept that, it means you don't have to view Rise of Skywalker, the way that Disney, to go back to that, to right. the way that Disney wants you to, you can view it, it's, as I've said and articulated in another episode, like 
as actually articulating an argument against the monoculture that Disney practices all the time. Like that, that is in that work and it is not conscious or intentional. And if I brought it up to JJ Abrams, I'm sure he'd be horrified. Well, but he'd like, just say, it, you don't know what you're talking about. Or I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah, because, right. but, but why does, why should he know, you know, like right, if you, right. how many times has this ex- happened where, you really liked a movie and you've read what the director said about it. And you're like, that's not what you did. I, know. I feel like the, that. In fact, it's happened every time. The only time I can <laughs> say that there was an exception and it's not really fair to call this an exception because he's the greatest filmmaker that ever lived is Orson Welles talking about Kane. He talks about mm. it pretty well. He talks about it pretty well. Like he knows what he kind of knew what he was doing. So, yeah. so I think that, but, but most of every other time I've been disappointed. Yeah. You know? I've just been like, oh my God, just stop talking about your own film. That's yeah, why, there, to me, the DVD, the director's the commentary, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. think those should be never allowed on a DVD. Like just, which is, <laughs> I think that's one of the good things about the turn to online is that there's no more commentary tracks. <laughs> that's right? really, that's very funny. I think the, the Simpsons ones are very good, but it's never about like what they meant to do. It's always like around the writing it. And I, I don't know, like I, I well, find that interesting. Well, it can be funny, right? It can yeah, be funny yeah. or interesting. Like, right. Of course they can right. bring up things that you didn't know. I just think if they ever get to interpreting what's going on, then I, I want to turn it off and not listen it's bad. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It ends up being bad, bad. So yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's just, it's, it's really, really fascinating that like the, this work that has these three editions, one of which doesn't exist. The second edition, which is based on a translation that is not the original. Like, I mean, th- just almost like everything about this essay is like, is pretty fascinating and goes both with and against the point that Benjamin himself is I making know, in it. I know, it, I know. It's a really, really cool um, essay for all these reasons. Um, w- I would and, say, can I just mention yeah, one other thing? Because I, I think yeah, please. That, I feel like this the key opposition that he's getting. So, so we've talked about the way in which capitalism destroys aura. And then there's this struggle within art after that, between Mm -hmm. the proletariat, the activity of the proletariat spectator and Mm -hmm. the capitalist commodification of the work of art. Right. So that's the real, that's where the rubber hits the road for Benjamin Mm -hmm. today. But I think what's interesting is this opposition that he sets up between what he calls the ritual function of art and the spectacle of art. And so I think, because I think we tend to think spectacle is bad, that spectacle is ideological. And Mm -hmm. for Benjamin, there's actually something emancipatory about spectacle and it's the ritual function Mm -hmm. that he sees as the retrograde part of the work of art. That's very interesting. Well, I mean, the spectacle, I mean, does that not come from Debord? Does that get like grafted on to understanding? Right. Benjamin? I think absolutely. Yeah. I think Guy Debord, yeah. like Society of Spectacle, I think that's absolutely where our, the, the reason why spectacle is anathema for us is that, that work. And then it's, it's what it gave birth to, you know, like Baudrillard is kind of mm-hmm. in the, in the wake of that, I think. And he's another big anti-spectacle thinker, I, I, I think. And, and I think that's correct. And so I feel like that there's this whole denigration of spectacle, but for Benjamin, it's actually that spectacle is the liberatory side of the mm-hmm. work of art, which is hard to think. I I I, I think. So, let's. Do you want to go back to an earlier example in the uh, in in our our podcast, like the the spectacle of. Uh, being in front of the Mona Lisa, right? like as you said, where there's a thousand people in a room that is meant to hold a hundred. 
and the all these the the cameras going off and you can, you can't even really see it. Like, what do you think? What 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 does Benjamin make of that? Like as spectacle, not because we talked about that in terms of aura, but well, talk about yeah. That in I think he thinks. I think he thinks that people are treating the. I I think he thinks the painting is always part of this ritualistic relationship that people have to art, right? So in, this mm-hmm. is in section 15 of the of the second version. He says that the technological reproducibility of the artwork changes the relation of the masses to art, right? So this mm-hmm. is the fact that we can make copies, our relation changes. The extremely mm-hmm. backward attitude toward a Picasso painting changes into a highly progressive reaction to a Chaplin film. I'm not sure I like... You know, I have problems with progressive, but okay. Yeah, I know, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the progressive attitude is characterized by an immediate, intimate fusion of pleasure, pleasure in seeing and experiencing, with an attitude of expert appraisal. So I think what he thinks is that this pleasure of seeing, which I mm-hmm. think we identify with spectacle, is mm-hmm. for him the emancipatory element of our, or the emancipatory way that we engage the work of art, which I just mm-hmm. think is... It's it's almost like he's he's thinking of enjoyment as a political factor, right? Like he's yeah, to take the title of Slavoj's book. Like I feel like he's yeah. he's really thinking of that enjoyment of the spectacle as itself emancipatory. Yeah. But see how yeah. does what's interesting mm-hmm. is so the end of the essay, which is we don't maybe shouldn't get to yet, but but it really yeah. is about the contrast between fascism and communism and mm. and 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 for him it's it's political art it's like this political response to art that's that he wants to value so mm-hmm. i don't understand maybe you can explain to me how that how spectacle is tied to that political response to art because it seems like no mm. like i think most of us would say no spectacle actually is the problem spectacle is fascistic yeah like that's yeah. what, you know when I think of Avengers or something, mm-hmm. I think of and the way in, like Avengers is perfect for so Benjamin says that that fascism is the is the politic like that that it's the asceticization of politics and the end mm-hmm. point of that is is turning war into an aesthetic phenomenon yeah. right and yeah. and so it seems like to me if you watch Avengers when they destroy New York City that's and you enjoy yeah. it aesthetically that's mm-hmm. the absolute that's the perfect endpoint of Benjamin's analysis. So, mm-hmm. so, and that's spectacle, I think. So I don't understand. It's hard for me to understand how, why he thinks the spectacle value of a work of art is, is emancipatory. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's backwards design this. Cause it's a little tricky for me too, because I, I had started to think, you know, if we understand, if you understand politics as, public maybe there's an inroad like like just as a straight right which he does which he does but right but 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 i think that this but i think it's clear that he he's not it's not just public interest like he he has and he should he has partisan interest in what the like public interest in politics should be like it's 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 pretty clear that it's not just like he's not he's not proposing this like this like neutral thing like you know he's he is into the like the russian cinema he's into what eisenstein is doing he's he is seeing this kind of like the the words you do not like this kind of progressive uh like like political action so i don't i don't know if that works 
I, I, so if we go, so, okay. So if we go with, um, spectacle being like this, this liberatory thing and the way that we get there is through understanding politics is, uh, that which creates public space. I don't know how I necessarily square that with it being a partisan public space. Does it, does he have, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do understand. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I don't have an answer to that question. Cause I feel like that's, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's around the idea of, so, so, yeah. So, I mean, like he says that we want to emancipate artistic practices from mm-hmm. the service of ritual. So maybe, okay. maybe that's what it's about, right? Like that, okay. that, that it's, that it, this is mainly in section six of the, of the essay, if you're mm-hmm. reading it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, that, that, that I think it's this, this, this contrast between the ritual or cult value and the, and the exhibition or spectacle value, I wonder if it's about the way in which it's just that the spectacle just undermines the ritual that, that it, that it kind of, that it removes it from, and maybe that's tied to this public space that it does, that it, that it, that it, the ritual is like, isn't ritual like they're only the priests can perform the rituals, right? Like that rituals or rites or cults, they're, they're, confined to a few people whereas you know spectacle is available to the masses this is why it's yeah, i mean okay. look there's a way like aristotle puts you know he has the six elements of 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 of, of poetry and and spectacle is the lowest one for aristotle mm. right and so mm-hmm. i think it, why is that because spectacle is the one most accessible to the masses so i right. wonder if if maybe benjamin's valuation of spectacle wasn't a kind of implicit or explicit maybe reversal of Aristotle's devaluation of it. That's precisely because of its availability to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think I like that as like the spectacle is the way to, okay. Especially bringing it to, to ritual. I suppose that, that, that contrast helpful. Yeah. That helpful yeah. is that like spectacle is the way to escape ritual. ritual. It's almost, you know, it, as you as you were explaining it, it really does remind me of um, Sartre and seriality because you know obviously I'm, I'm thinking about that all the time. That like you know that for if you were swapping the language is that um, ritual is like uh, I don't know what we like in unthinkingly engage in all the time. Like it, right. it is something that that quilts us. We don't do the quilting and spectacle is the way to requilt the ritual. Like it's, it's the, the, the way to, to find the, the group infusion. Right. Right. The, right. Yeah. Right. I wonder like, so then you'd have to read. So the, I, I guess the question now becomes is the obvious one is how do you read triumph of the will? Right. Like in yeah. these terms, because yeah. I think that's a film that Benjamin, Oh, was he thinking about it or not? What, what year it's like? Well, that's what this is, Norton claims that he is. That's, that's, that's a, explicitly in the intro to the essay, which is another one of these things where like, is that a framing device that's in the text or is that put, you know, uh, afterwards to, you know, push you toward reading it a certain way? Yeah. I don't know about that. Um, well it's so, well, I see like, I don't think that can possibly be because triumph of the will is 35 and the essay is first published in 35. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, maybe subsequently he can be thinking about that, but I don't think he could. And then I wonder if he had seen Triumph of the Will, if he wouldn't have been a little less sanguine about spectacle because, or would he have said what Riefenstahl is really filming is ritual, 
Yeah. Okay. Right? That's. I, I mean, I, yeah, I could maybe, see him maybe. saying that, but I think it's. I think it's. I think it's up in the air because I think I look at Triumph of the Will and I see a. I see like, I don't know if people haven't seen the film, but it begins with Hitler flying into, to Nuremberg on a. I think it's Nuremberg. Uh, he's way above the clouds in a plane. He's coming down, so it's like Christ descending yeah. down from heaven, right? So mm-hmm. it's very spectacular, and all we see mm-hmm. troops. It's basically a film of two hours of troops marching. Yeah. Um, so and and speeches. So so it's. I don't Stephen know. Miller's it, Wet Dream. I think <laughs> is the, the other title it goes by. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. Uh, uh, yeah, so I don't know. So I think you could see it either way, but I think he would have to consider it as ritual, right? Like yeah. That's, because it's anything that's aestheticizing politics mm-hmm. yes. is for him is not spectacular. Like the spectacular doesn't do that, I guess. I, I, again, I'm, I'm having a little trouble because I'm not sure, I'm not sure how that makes sense because I, I feel like, and I think this is, would be one of the Could things this be a product Adorno. of all the cuts? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Like, is this, is this possibly like all the cuts in the different framing? Well, like, no, is, I think he really thinks this. I think he absolutely yeah. thinks it. Like, it's, it's central to the opposition he's setting up. But I, I just think it's a place maybe where his, his enthusiasm for, for film maybe gets the best of him. I don't know. I don't know. It's mm. kind of. And, a, and, that, and that's why the Mickey Mouse is removed because it doesn't. It doesn't square. I, it is interesting that like that he... Well, Mickey Mouse is the great figure of spectacle, right? Like that right, fits exactly. totally, but I yeah. think Adorno would not like that, mm. right? So that, so he removed, he removed the way out. I mean, I find that interesting that like, um, the, so in, in spectacle, there is no aestheticizing. Is that, is that correct? Would, would Benjamin say well, that? That's right. And that seems strange to me, doesn't it? Like yeah. That, yeah. Like he calls it, he uses a couple words. He calls spectacle or exhibition value of the work of mm-hmm. art. And, mm-hmm. and, and like, isn't exhibition and isn't there something aestheticizing in that? I don't know. I, yeah. I just, but I think he thinks there's, I don't know. I think he thinks there's not. And there's this struggle between these two elements, between the ritual and the exhibition. And I guess the, I guess what he thinks is that one confines mm-hmm. to a, to a, to to a, a small number, and the mm-hmm. other is expansive, right? It goes out okay. to the to the largest possible number of people. Although he does have this in the second version, he talks about the way in which film is able to appropriate certain ideas without, mm-hmm. or art is without calling into question property and and relations of property. So there is this there is this element where he is kind of making that Adorno Frankfurt school critique, I think. Hmm. It's interesting. Like the, the, like the tensions in the idea and then the tensions in the work itself, yeah. I think is, uh, is like pretty fascinating to think through. Does any of it, does any of it, uh, get, um, resolved or do we have a way of looking through by the, like the final section, which is called epilogue in the Norton version. Uh, and it's, and it's just, section what is it? 19 in the other version. So that, which okay. tells you the depths of the excision, right? Because yeah, there's 19, how many sections are in the third version? There's uh, only 15, 15, right? So, yeah. so, yeah. so three sections cut off and then one turned from a section 19 into an, into an epilogue. But so right before section 19, the epilogue, he says, 
reception and distraction finds in film its true training ground. So, so that's interesting, right? Like we, hmm. I think our tendency, and I think this is tied to the spectacle question because I think our tendency is to say, if you're just dis- like distracted viewing is the problem. Yeah. Like that's how you suck up ideological messages without paying attention to them critically. Mm-hmm. But he likes it. He likes yeah. reception <laughs> and distraction. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's it's just it's I think that you know he's really one of these figures in academia who's so lauded and almost no one doesn't like him. Just like yeah. you were saying, how people who are historicist materialists who are basically our opponents they love him. <laughs> yeah. So and 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 in Sublime Object of Ideology, Slavoj's first English book, he has a whole one of the whole chapters is basically a reading of theses on the philosophy of history. So there's. There's, mm-hmm. it's really, he's one of these figures that fits, that everybody kind of likes. And I wonder if it's because he has this double element, like he's, he's, he's on the one hand, he still has an, enough critique of, of, mm-hmm. of mass art. And then on the other hand, he has all these ways thinking of it, seeing it as emancipatory. Yeah. It's, fa- it's kind of fast. I mean, I do think that, that he's probably a pretty good example of someone for whom the, the way that he can exist in both camps is because he's actually, he's actually trying to solve, like he's trying to articulate the problem. Like I, I, I do, like, I do think like, you know, if he lived long enough, uh, to have like heard about, um, you know, Lacan's notion of sublimation, like, like what he, what would he have thought about that? And I, and I, and I think that he, it, it's interesting to read him and see how, because I think that the historical materialist position reads him this way too, but at, at different purposes, which is that like you can see like Benjamin circumscribing certain problems and like he either his work like was either going in that direction and it, and it didn't get there because of the, the tragedy of, of his of his life ending when it did the way that it did um, or like or it just uh, he, he's trying to raise the, the question for us. Yeah. Um, like, and, yeah. and I think there's enough there where, you know, like this, of course, like, like, uh, I would point to for, for, I don't know, for like quote our side, I would point to the inclusion of the, um, the, like the, the kind of lengthy relative to the other sections, like, um, in, inclusion of, uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and saying like how this like helps like push, everything that he's saying about like, like the, 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 the destruction of aura and like the, the, the critical um, engagement with the work of art. Like, and I think, you know, there's also enough for other, for other folks to see, right. This like total uh, suspicion of like um, mass uh, culture and, and, and mass media and uh, that he, you know, you can see him like rejecting it and it's very easy to see. Well, him even, I mean, don't you think that one of Mickey the- Mouse, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I think one of the most important ideas I've just picking up what you're saying was the introduction of optical unconscious, right? Yeah, that's which is utterly in line with obviously with psychoanalytic psychoanalytic thinking. So I I feel like that you really summarized it really well, this way in which he's not caught between both camps, but in both camps at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, yeah, so so he's a yeah, he's a very, very interesting figure for, for that reason. And then, of course, like the you want to do the final? Yeah, you let's the, talk about the final. Yeah. You want to read that final bit because it's such a poetic ending. I think. Yeah, the whole paragraph. <laughs> or, uh, well, I I think just that part, just that last, you know, uh, the um, where he says, 
I'll just say it. So you you do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> we're, we're being too says, kind to each other. This is evidently the consummation of lar por lar, art for art's sake. Humankind, which once in Homer was an object of contemplation for the Olympian gods, has now become one for itself. Its self-alienation, uh, its self-alienation has reached the point where it can experience its own annihilation as a supreme aesthetic pleasure, such as the aestheticizing of politics as practiced by fascism. Communism replies by politicizing art. Mm-hmm. Now that's, I think that's pretty, I, I've always loved that ending. I think it's such a great, like just the, the, the contrast between the two approaches and the way mm-hmm. in which they're not exactly lined up as opposites. Like one mm-hmm. aestheticizes politics and then what is, what does communism do? It politicizes, politicizes art. art. Right. Mm-hmm. So which, I think which, it's, which is not, which is not aesthetics, right? He's really not clear aesthetics. on that. Right, right. Right. So it's, yeah, that's interesting that it's not an aesthetic. It's not to make our aesthetic, not to always read politics into our aesthetic responses, but to actually Mm -hmm. demand a politicized art, I think. Yeah. I think that, yeah, like you could imagine, you could, like, if if there was another word, uh, communism replies by demanding, uh, like, political art. Right. Like that, like that might be another way uh, because yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's one of these things where you can read that, um, into 2020 and be like, Oh, that's kind of cute. We don't know that communism does that. You know, like where, like, where's the, where's the collective, the, that, or like who's speaking for the communist party and, and are they saying this, you know? And so you, you can, it, it would be, it, it can be easy to, I think, hand wave it and just focus on the fascistic part because that is like right kind of everywhere. Um, right. Like see Portland, which by the way, I was just wanted to talk about this for a second. Um, we said in an earlier podcast that like, you cannot be violent toward a building. And that is ostensibly the justification for these like jack, jack booted thugs yeah. in Portland at night. I read this. This is absolutely incredible. Court filings have said, are you ready for this Todd? Over $50,000 of property damage has been done to the courthouse in Portland. Do you know how much has been paid for these fascist thugs to be there? It's like $8 million. Incredible. Is, Incredible. And, and so, but we're, we're concerned about that. And yeah. so it's, it's, um, and that is a clear, even the, like, I would well, even, even this. That, that, that's okay. an interesting thing. Cause don't you think that's an actual instance of what Benjamin's talking about? Because yes. Trump is sending them into Portland as an aesthetic phenomenon. Yes. Absolutely. Like I was just about to, you, you were, yeah. you're, you're yeah, sorry, we were, I stole your thunder. No, 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 you didn't. No, no, you were, we were on at the same time because even these videos that are terrifying at night in, in Portland, they have, they, they are utterly aestheticized. Like, like the, the, they, they have, a, there, there's a look to them that Trump wants. It is that like, it, it is absolutely this, this fascistic look. And, you know, I, I, I saw like there are thousands of people protest and I'm not, and I am in no way saying this. To, to, I really want to be clear to diminish like the horror of this. There's 56 arrests. I suppose that we know about, but like 56 arrests. Um, and it, it's, it really, to me, be, it, it is about cultivating this aesthetic. That's right. what this is about. This, this is why they do it at night. It's not just because, the, the, the protesters are there. It's they do it at night and they want it to be clandestine. Like, you know, there's a video that says like, leave no evidence, right? They're like chanting this, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the stormtroopers, right? Um, and it is all about 
crafting this. So this, I, I think, like that end of, of this is um, for for Benjamin absolutely like kind of future proof in a, a yeah meaning, yeah yeah. He, he clearly understood the structure of fascism, which is to um, go after an aesthetics. And the like the the aims of it, like the 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 targets, like we know that too. Like it is always the other, the other takes different shape, like whatever. But the this this point about crafting a look is, uh, I think, very very important. And, yeah, and that I think even even these video, I'm sorry, even these like- videos that are that I think people think like we're like unmasking the 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 problem when they post them, and they should do this, but it achieves the aim. Of, of aestheticizing the, 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 the response. No, Ryan, I think that, I think this is the smartest thing Benjamin ever said, probably, right? Like that, yeah. that, that, that this notion, his analysis, or let me put it this way, because I think he said a lot of smart things. This is the best analysis of fascism that anyone's ever done. And it's only, mm. it's only like a couple paragraphs. Right? It's amazing. <laughs> uh-huh. But I think it's absolutely right. And I, I think you're right that the only thing that wasn't so future-proof was the communism response by by politicizing art because yeah. we we don't necessarily have this sense of communism that he had I think yeah. and I, you know even even to turn turn it to like progressivism you know I, I think it's yeah. hard I mean this comes back to our struggle for a signifier for the left but yeah. I mean I I would think I mean I think it would have aged better if he just said something like emancipatory politics politics response by politicizing art right like yeah. that mm-hmm. I think that would have I think that would have maybe, I mean, that would have been what I would say, but yeah, I don't yeah. want to make Benjamin say what I, but I, I think <laughs> that he is, he is, he does have, there's something to that idea of politicizing art yeah. um, as a leftist project. But I, I do, mm-hmm. I agree with you that the way he puts it, it does, it kind of it rings like today. It's, it doesn't have the same bite as the, as the critique of fascism does. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like you can, I mean, you can see the you can see the truth of his position that that line in the like the, you know the resistance from the fascistic right to uh, politics being in sport, right? Like like right, I mean, right. and and that uh, another reason why it's unfortunate that the sports part is taken out of this essay because you can totally weave that that back in that like it is clear that. Um, it is clear that that the the fascist figures and and the fascistic political um, position understands that sport is public, and so like that's why Rudy Giuliani is a a gas that uh, baseball players kneeled before the anthem and then some during they all they should have they should have kneeled the entire time that you know uh, but like that's uh, we're it's. It's it is funny though when you when you watch sport in other countries that like they don't do the national anthem right, like, I know, it, it I becomes know. you know like like you well that's you, part of the way in yeah. which they're turned like I think what Benjamin would say is they're taking the radicality out of sport by putting this yeah. ritual aspect yes. of the anthem into it that's fantastic right? and that yeah. I think that makes that makes it very clear so the the kneeling makes it a spectacle which uh, exceeds the ritual right. Right. Yeah. Benjamin would like that. I think he would really uh, yeah, like so. that. Yeah. And he, and the way that it has become this area of political contestation, I think he would say that, I think that he would say that proves what I was, that proves what I was trying to get at. Right. Like yeah. that. Yeah. I think that's what he would say. Yeah. That's yeah. uh yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's like, I remember when we did the Zaddy fascism, um, uh, 
episode, like I, I love this line of yours. It said like, if, if you have uh, 12, 16, whatever, if you have like 16 signs of fascism, you don't have one. And right. I think, I think that Benjamin has the one, doesn't he? I think that that's a the, great point. Yeah. I it, think it's absolutely yeah. true that he really, this like, are you aestheticizing politics? You're a yes. fascist. Yeah. You're I think fascist. that's, yeah. I think that's, yes. I think that's right. I think it's really, yeah. which I think this is my, this is a whole other topic, but I think that's an indictment of, of, of Lars von Trier and Melancholia, this film that a lot of our oh, friends yeah. love. <laughs> oh, wow. I think what that a is turn. A film, I know. I will, I'll, I'll leave that as a little thing because I want to say the lesson of this podcast, I think, is to what it would you, I think you should watch Triumph of the Will, but you should watch it with a, with a, with a, with a Benjaminian eye, right? Of course. Of course. That's great. Uh, could you t- just real quick? Could you talk a second on on melancholia? Because I think that well, that's too much of a tease. <laughs> too much of a tease. I have an essay on yeah. it, but but my, my okay. My, right. my, my take is just this: that that it's um that that you see it's a film obviously about the destruction of the world, but mm-hmm. you see the 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 planet that comes and runs into Earth is so <laughs> beautiful, and there's mm-hmm. this one moment where there's a Wagner. Uh, part of Tristan and Isolde is, is playing and, and, and what's her name is Kristen Dunst is mm-hmm. Kristen Dunst is lying on this rock and you can see the planet as it's coming, approaching earth, ready to destroy it. And it's an incredibly beautiful moment. And I think, and even at the end she builds this thing and there's just, there's this real beauty to the whole destruction. And so I think, I think Von Trier, it's interesting that in promoting that film, he he accidentally oh, he, he accidentally pra- he vowed that he was a Nazi. Yeah. Well, he said this praise of Hitler, right? Something uh, I think yeah. what he said. And Kirsten Dunst is up there going like, "What are you doing? I can't believe I'm up there with you." Uh, yeah, but it's I just thought it's just it's like he kind of knew what mm-hmm. his film did because I, I you know I look this is a minority report on this film. I, everybody loves it. Our our friend Jennifer Friedlander just thinks it's amazing. So and she's probably right and I'm wrong, but. Um, <laughs> But I do think, for me, it's just that's what it does. It, it's like there's a, there's a, there's a moment that which is political mm-hmm. that gets utterly aestheticized, and mm-hmm. I think that's I don't know that yeah. That, so so that, it, that, it makes it unsurprising that that is what happened in his right. uh, press conference, like right. in front of the, yeah. That was no, my, that was my point. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a cheap shot, but anyway. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's a well, it's a cheap shot mixed in with analysis, so it makes it right. I so it's, it's, it's even half worse. A, yeah. half a cheapy. Oh, you you think it makes it worse? All right, well, I do. I don't know. Well, I don't know. T- All right, but my lesson is to watch <laughs> Triumph of the Will because you should see it at least once, and if you haven't seen it, you should see it once in your life, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, then and then I, I think it, it it makes the you know it's just um and not to uh, not to brexit the end of the podcast which is like i have said this to you before i'm a conversational brexiter where like i, I always say that i'm going to leave and then i don't and yeah, then i yeah. leave at the worst possible time yeah. uh the, the but the even the response to, to like the 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 new york times frequently bet noir for me i suppose their their response to um to what's happening in portland is this like it's the most timesy uh, article title did you see it strain it's like straining the limits of their authority comma like troops descend on portland like it's like oh way to bury the problem in one sentence you know it's like this this like oh hmm do they have the authority to do this hard to say as they you know attack 
uh, Portland citizens at night and tear gas, you know, the people and just like push them. Like, like, no, no, it's the last one. It's the last part. We can like we like like we don't need to get in the 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 legalese of this. Like you, you, it's okay. It is really okay to come out and say this is not all right. And and that like. I know that the the Patriot Act, like it, it's okay, you know what, to say that th- this, if it's not literally illegal because the Patriot Act uh, authorizes it, um, that it should be, and to call for um, a, a, a reevaluation and to demand that like Biden and the Democratic Party make this part of their platform, like it's okay to do that as a, as the paper of record. They can do that. They're, That's pretty good. Allowed. So so what you're saying is watch Triumph of the Will, so you have a mapping. Of the contemporary situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 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 That's that's terrifying. Okay. (laughs) All right. Over and out, Ryan. Over and out, Todd. (laughs)